Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Good morning. It is lovely to see you here today. My name is Chantelle. Um, I'm one of the worship leaders here and I'm also a warden here at this church. And it's my privilege to be talking uh, with you today about 1 Corinthians 3. So it's the third week in our series. And at the moment, we're looking at uh, divisions in the church. That's what this section of um, this book is covering. So let me pray as we begin. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. We thank you for the experiences of churches in times gone by that we can learn from. And this morning, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to focus, that we would understand the message that you want us to hear. I ask that I would speak clearly and that we would all have hearts and minds that are teachable as we look at 1 Corinthians 3 this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now hopefully this clicker is going to do all the things. There we go. We have five children in our family. I don't know if you know of them because they're so quiet here at church. You may have missed them. In our household, though, we often have a conversation uh, that borders an argument on the maturity of our kids and what they are and aren't allowed to do because they would say perhaps that they're more mature and more able to do particular things when maybe Gary and I would say, no, they're not. So, for example... For one of our youngest, it's just bedtime. They want to be able to go to bed at like 8.45 instead of 8.30. Or for our elder children, it might be the types of movies they're allowed to watch and whether or not they're mature enough to handle a PG or an M-rated movie because their other friends are, but they're not. It could be whether or not they can have a device. And we've gone through this with our daughter who is in year seven. Is she mature enough to handle a device? We decided that she was. But there's an issue that comes about when they say they're mature and think they're mature and Gary and I know that they're not. And it's a constant, ongoing conversation in our household. And when we look at the church in Corinth at this time, we can see it's a similar issue that's happening. They would say that they were grown-ups and even perhaps that they knew better than Paul. But as soon as we start to go through the passage today, we realise that that's actually not the case, because we can clearly see that Paul thought otherwise. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. They were a very confident church, the church in Corinth. They were quite successful. They had quite prominent people in their church. They looked good. They thought of themselves as spiritual. But how does Paul address them? He says they're worldly, not spiritual. He says they're infantile, not adult. And they're acting as the world would think someone should act, not as one who knows Christ. And the evidence is in their diet. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So they were living on this diet of baby food, Paul had spent 18 months with them initially when uh, we see in Acts 18 that he was doing that and they were on that diet and that is, that's fine. I liken it to our children when we start to introduce foods to them. It's fine. You, you gradually introduce different types of food. But this is him when he writes four or five years later 
addressing the same issue. And that would be weird for us. If our kids were still eating the same food from six months old to five years old, there's an issue there. And this is the same issue that's happening in this church. It's seen in their attitude toward Christian leaders, the immaturity that they have. If we have a look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And yet another, I follow Christ. Paul says that in their thinking, they're acting like unbelievers. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Their whole attitude toward Christian leaders is guided by the secular ideas that were happening at the time of leadership instead of those that were set out in the Christian church. And the qualities that they were looking for were more man-centred than Christ-centred. Now, Paul is not doubting that this church these people that he's talking to are Christians. He addresses them as brothers and sisters in verse 1, and later on in verse 16, he talks to them about having the Spirit. So they're Christians. It's not that they don't have a faith, but he's saying to them, your thinking about leaders is immature, and you're looking at the outward rather than the inward. We know the whole of the Christian life should be shaped by the cross. And so even though the main issue here is the factions and people lining up behind different leaders, having their teams, as we know, that's not where Paul starts. He starts with the underlying issue, and that is the misunderstanding of the gospel message. Already Paul has argued that the power of the Christian life and the power to bring people to Christ, the power to equip people to go on in the Christian life lies in the message of the gospel and not in the personality of Christian leaders. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We also see in chapter 2 that it's the work of the Spirit to drive that message home in the hearts and the minds of the hearers. So now in chapter 3... Paul moves on to apply those foundational principles to Christian leaders, that all Christian experience is shaped by the cross. And it is worth pointing out before we look more into this um, teaching on leadership that when Paul talks about leadership, he's not just talking about people who are paid in the church. It is anyone who has any role or position of leadership in the church. And by extension, we know that all Christians are in ministry, maybe not in the church, but definitely in the world. And so it's important that we all know and that we all own what it means to be genuine Christian leaders. I googled, as you do, some famous Christian leaders and got some images. Now we've got quite a variety up there of people who have some sort of fame in the Christian church. And I think the thinking is very vast, very widespread, uh, like I mentioned at 8am, from, from John MacArthur to Bill Johnson and everyone in between. And we know that there are divisions and arguments and factions that happen in churches. But you might say, oh, you know what, I'm actually not part of that. I'm, I don't have an issue with that. I'm just stay away from that. I'm happy here at our church. So then I thought, okay, let's have a look at our leaders I've gone with, the, like I said, the top four. Um, 
acknowledging there are others that serve in this church and that are in leadership positions. But, you know, we look at our church leaders and I, I look at Ben. I think he's, such, he's got such a servant heart. He does all those jobs I was saying at 8am. He's just, he, he just knows where to go and do things and fix things and jump in and help out. And there's Megan. Megan, look at her. <laughs> we talk about the humility of our leaders. She just structures her sermons in a way that make it so easy to understand. I really like Megan. I think she's great. I really like Ben too. Then there's Emily, who is just so lively and full of energy. She runs, she literally runs up onto this stage every single Sunday. Her passion is infectious and she gets the kids on board so well. And then we have Nick, who's just cool. <laughs> My kids think he's cool. We have people who might like, and there's nothing wrong with liking and having, you know, and a particular um, clicking with different styles of leadership. I'm not having a go at that. And I'm not saying that there's issues here. But you can see how easy it would be, though, as you start to talk about different leaders, to start to see divisions and cracks that could happen if we start to focus on the wrong things. Here in the passage today, I might just take their photos down. Yep. Yeah. It's a bit of a distraction. We have two leaders that have become the occasion for division and factions in the church. For pride to come into judgment in this immature church that we see in Corinth. And Paul uses it as an opportunity to outline what it means to be mature. With a foundation found in God, with godly leaders pointing the church toward the work of Christ crucified. So let's take a look at what he says in this passage. There are two main points that I want to draw out, and the first that are leaders are servants. So from verses 5 to 9. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So if we think about the word servants here, it's the idea of the person who comes to the table and serves you your food. It's just a very low task, a low role that's looked down on. It's not that they are the head of the table. It's not that they're an honoured guest. It's not that they're the owner of the house or the maker of the food. They're the table waiter. That's what this word servant means. They're not heroes and nor are they to be placed on a pedestal. And so Paul is trying to convey to the church in Corinth to adjust their thinking, to be careful to not put leaders such as Apollos or himself on a pedestal. Again, in verse 5, we see that they are servants through whom you believed. Through whom. That means the power that brought you to faith did not and does not reside in them. It flows through them. When I was trying to think of a way to explain it, uh, I came across an illustration that talks about being, we have pipes in our house and we have water that we want to get. And yes, we need to have the pipes that work well. They need to make sure that the water comes through the pipes, but it's the water that we want that refreshes us. And so, in the same way, whilst we can appreciate good leaders, the pipes, the focus is on Christ and what he's done by his spirit, which is the water. So we can't put leaders on a pedestal because that's Christ's place. Finally, what else do we notice in verse 5? It's very clear that Christian leaders can't take personal credit for the work they do. 
because the Lord has assigned to each their task. In other words, their effectiveness is not due to their own innate abilities. It's simply that the Lord has assigned different tasks to different people and different work for them to do. As we move into verses 6 to 8, we have a bit of a field analogy that comes up. Paul planted and Apollos watered, but neither of them could make the plants grow. Only God makes things grow. And there are two conclusions that are drawn by Paul in these verses. Neither the planter nor the waterer are important. The attention of the Corinthians should have been focused on God, who alone affects all spiritual work and not on Paul or Apollos or any other leader for that matter. And number two, there's an essential unity between the planter and the waterer. The work of neither can be successful without that of the other. You can't plant but not water. You can't water something that's not planted. Different leaders have different things to do and so there's no place for the competition that was happening there in Corinth. And nor does it make sense for there to be competition because they're totally different jobs. Paul planted because his work was more of a pioneer in nature. He was preaching where no one had preached before and Apollos watered. He worked in the established church encouraging the converts that Paul had won. Different jobs, one purpose, to build people's faith and to make much of God, not themselves, and one message to preach Christ crucified with no room for competition or jealousy. Jealousy was rife in the Corinthian church. It leads to quarrelling, divisions and tribalism, and if we're honest, this happens in any church. So I ask, do we see it in ourselves? Do we see it in the way we treat different leaders or take sides? Do we compete with each other if we're people who are involved in leading different ministries? Our focus as a church needs to not be on the planter nor on the waterer, but on the one who makes things grow. Paul says at the end of verse 8, and each will receive his wages according to his labour. The Corinthian church at the time was noticing differences between Paul and Apollos. They saw differences in the way that they worked and they thought that they could put appropriate value on each of these differences and they spoke about them and they boasted about them and Paul stopped and was saying to them that each will stand before his own master for his reward and that wasn't before the church, it was before God. God knows their work and it's God that rewards perfectly in accord with what he knows not with what people of the church thought. It's not something for the church to worry about. We then move from our agriculture example to our architecture example, and that is that leaders are builders. Now, I googled, again, Google, pictures of cities that had changed over the years. So this here is in Dubai. And the top picture is in um, 2000, and the bottom picture is now, I think it's 2017. Um, it's a bird's eye view, so it's a little bit hard to tell, but you can see how much has changed around the canal things that they've got there over 20 years. Um, the entire emirate has kind of grown and become this massive 
buzzing hub. But unlike this, where it happens very quickly, in the first century, it could take 30 to 40 years just to build one large building. And the main point of this metaphor that we see is that builders are accountable for how they build and they're accountable to God himself. And verse 10 very clearly says to us that we all need to build with care. It's been just over five years since the Grenfell Tower tragedy that occurred in North Kensington in London. For those that aren't familiar with the story, this was a 24-storey flat building, flats, block of flats, that caught a light. And it began because there was an electrical fault in someone's fridge. But the fire spread very quickly through the building and it killed 72 men, women and children in a very short amount of time. And the scandal of this story is that lives needn't have been lost because it emerged in an investigation following the fire that it was the poor choices of cladding that had led to the rapid um, spread of the fire and the ensuing loss of life. It had been very dodgily constructed and it had also been wrongly deemed safe by building inspectors. Until the fire struck... No one could tell by looking at this building that it was more vulnerable to fire than any other building. And we see in verses 10 to 17 that Paul uses a similar picture for the local church. But the fire this time is judgment day, the day Jesus returns. And Paul's saying that it's possible to build something that looks secure and impressive, but for it not to survive on that judgment day. And so that we're not caught out, Paul says that there are three sort of checks that we can make as a church to check that we're building correctly. Number one, check the foundation. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. Paul was in a unique position as an apostle. God's gift to him, he helped lay the foundation of the New Testament church. So what makes a church a church? The foundation of Jesus Christ. The church belongs to him. It's the message of the cross and that through his death, Jesus has done everything necessary to ensure those who trust in him can be confident of heaven. This is the foundation that's laid down by the apostles with the help of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the responsibility of subsequent generations of Christians is to build those foundations. It's to keep to New Testament teaching and to not add anything else to it. No one can lay any foundation, is what is said in verse 11. I guess we could, we could try, but his point is that they wouldn't be building a church if they did so. Because if we think about Deep Creek, we could be just a place that's a good social network. We could be a place that encourages good moral living. We could be a community that would like to demand social action. But that's not a church because its foundations are wrong. If it's not built on the work of Christ and the teaching of the apostles, it's not a church. So check our foundations. 
The second is to check the building materials. The verses in um, 12 to 15 aren't about how we as individuals build our lives as Christians, but about the local church. And the key issue in these verses is will it last? Will it remain standing on judgment day? Because you can work hard in Christian circles, but it may not last. It could look impressive now, but that's no guarantee it will survive because on judgment day, only teaching that's focused on and is true to Christ crucified will stand. Of those six materials that are mentioned, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay and straw, only the first three can withstand fire. Only the first three are worthy of the foundation. And teaching that's not faithful to Christ crucified will not survive. Careless building resorts to inferior supplies that will be burned on the final day. And the builder will just barely scrape through the flames. So I ask, are we building a genuine church that will last? Are we doing that? Are we seeking to build up our church? It's important and great to have fun programs and activities, but are we teaching Christ crucified? Are we putting time into discipling? And as we gather for worship together on a Sunday, are we taking hold of the messages we hear and seeking to apply them? Are we holding one another accountable? Are we recognising when we're behaving in a way that's not of God or holding beliefs that aren't in line with his word and repenting of them? Are we building with gold, silver and costly stones so that at the end we will withstand the fire? Are there areas that we need to repent of where we've, building, we've been building with hay and straw that need to be replaced with gold and silver? Here Paul says a genuine church will last. To build the church on the gospel and the word of God is to build a solid structure. It's to build with gold, silver and costly stones. So check the foundations, check the materials and finally check ourselves. These next two verses can be very encouraging but also quite damning at the same time. Verse 16 tells us that believers are the temple of God and Paul is addressing the whole church, not just the leaders. So this is everyone and it's not just your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit kind of thought. It's you are, all of you plural, are the temple of God. So there are two Greek words for temple. <laughs> Megan told me how to say it before, but I've forgotten now. doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just going to say Heron, which includes all the temple precincts. So it includes the whole temple that's there. And Naos, which is the word that's used in this passage, that's talking about the actual shrine, the sanctuary, the inner sanctuary where God dwells. So the word that's used for temple is pointing us to the very presence of God. The spirit dwells in the Corinthian believers and that's true for us as well. So the thought here is that as a community, this is where God dwells, in with us. It's a place for God's dwelling, the church body. And together the believers are the sphere in which the Holy Spirit reveals his presence and his power. 
It is such a great encouragement to the Corinthian church and to us today, but it is also the reason for the words that are spoken in the following verse, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. I think there are two ways to remove a foundation and destroy a church. One is to attack the foundation directly and break it up, and the other is to slowly and subtly reshape the building so that its contours don't rest on the foundation anymore. Many things can destroy a church. Factions like in Corinth, prayerlessness, gossip, bitterness, materialism, but also blatant false teaching. And so verse 17 is a warning to those in Corinth who by their actions threaten to destroy the church because it's God's temple And the one who fails to react rightly towards it is guilty of no light sin. It's different to what happens in verse 15 where the bad workman is still saved. They still scrape through the flames. To build with shoddy materials is one thing, but to destroy the building is a whole other thing. To engage in divisions is to destroy this divine society and consequently to invite God to destroy the sinner. So leaders are servants, leaders are builders, but they are servants of God and ones who build their foundation on Christ. It's his church. We come to the end of the passage that I'm just going to briefly touch on. Verse 18 serves as a final challenge and warning for applying God's, sorry, for applying the world's criteria to godly leadership. When we try to do this into the life of the church, it can become quite damaging. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. By contrast, the cross demands a radical reversal of values. While the world values power and prestige, Jesus displays himself most powerfully in the apparent weakness of a cross, what was actually the ultimate display of strength. Now, the world longs for strong leaders, assertive, forceful leaders with a great vision. Leaders in the local church must first be servants of Christ. Yes, they must be strong leaders, but strong in humility, the irony from before. (laughs) Self-control with the mind of Christ and his vision and leaders that prize truth over style. We started this morning questioning the maturity of the Corinthian church, so I now ask, how mature are we? The true mark of maturity is found in verse 21 onwards. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. A mark of a truly mature church doesn't boast in its leaders, but boasts only in Christ. It's a church that realises they are God's church and that in Jesus that is where they have all that they need. It's to understand that Jesus has given his all for us. It's to get rid of the wood, the hay and the straw. It's to to repent of our worldly outlook, to choose gold, silver and costly stones. It's to choose Jesus and to desire as God's temple 
to give our all for him. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for this book. We thank you that as your people, we have Christ as our foundation. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us examples of what it means to have a right attitude toward the leaders that we have here in our church. We ask, Lord God, that you would be showing us what it is that we need to be working on, what it is that we need to be repenting on, that you would show us how to build in a way that glorifies you, God. Please strip away anything that might be in the way of us hearing clearly from you. And may we be a people that seek to glorify you in what we do. Amen.